0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large at at Recode. You may know me as someone who loves giving free advice, especially to people who don't ask for it, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jessica Weisberg, an award-winning writer whose new book is called Asking for a Friend. It's a tour of three centuries of advice givers who have made their names and sometimes their fortunes by telling Americans what to do. She also works at Gimlet Media and previously was a producer at Vice News Tonight and on the hit podcast, Serial. We have a lot to talk about. Jessica, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you so much. What an interesting career you've had. Why don't you go through that? Because we always ask about people's careers and how they got to where they got. So I want to understand how you got to your advice giving book, essentially.
1: Sure. Um, So my advice giving book... the way it started was I was at the New Yorker a number of years ago. Doing I, writing? I was a fact checker and I was writing a lot for the website. And mm-hmm. I was also writing this sort of anonymous book reviews in the mm-hmm. back of the book. So in case you wondered who wrote those, it's okay. fact
0: checkers. Okay. And, Why um, did you want to become a fact checker? Is that just like, oh, you got to work at the New Yorker? Or? It was
1: sort of my, it was like, um, it was my first job. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Basically, I thought um, it would be a great way. I'd never gone to journalism school. Right. And I thought, like, what better
0: way to it's learn about journalism? It's a hard job to get fact checker than your York. I bet it is.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I feel like I lucked into it. Um, but everyone there has to speak a couple languages. Oh, wow. Um, because they won't, they yeah. want to be able to fact check in other languages. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's a really smart group of people. And I've kept in touch with all of the people I fact checked with. And mm-hmm. now they're my editors mm-hmm. and my colleagues. And so it was a really nice community. Right. It was like grad school without having to pay for. Sure, it.
0: perfect. So you were there and So
1: I was there and um, I was there was a book coming out at the time um, by Cheryl Strayed mm-hmm. called Tiny Beautiful Things and right. I said to my editor, "Oh, hey, I'd like to review that one. That one's interesting to me. I read it on the website." Mm-hmm. And my editor at there, who I have a lot of respect for, was like, "Oh, we're not going to We're not going to review an advice book. That's right. not what we yeah. do." Yeah. Yeah, and I was like, well, was okay. from her column um, so. Yeah, um, Dear Sugar. Dear Sugar, So right. it was a really popular column at the time on the rumpus. Mm-hmm. And I had read it and thought it was
0: really beautifully Explain written. the rumpus for those who don't know. The
1: yeah. rumpus is a website that's sort of for literary types, I mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really nice website. They have um, some original fiction, um, but it's mostly sort of interviews with writers and profiles of writers. And Cheryl Strayed had anonymously written this advice column called Dear Sugar, And people had written to her. Often, I think it started with sort of questions on writing and Mm -hmm. questions from aspiring writers. Mm -hmm. But it turned into questions about all sorts of things. Mourning, love, loss, divorce. And I just thought that she created this really incredible community online. Right. Very funny. Very... Funny and wise and really poignant. Yeah, and she had a tough life too. So she she had a lot of
0: advice to give or a lot of experience.
1: And it was the kind of advice column that's like really is where the person giving the advice is revealing more about themselves than any of the people Mm -hmm. asking for. Which are the best columns. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting. And she's a really well known writer. And so I said, hey, I'd love to review this book. And the editor was like, "No, we're not reviewing that." I was mm-hmm. like, "Well, that's interesting. Like, why would for a review of an advice book? This is something that is has a huge history in our culture, and its um, advice givers are people who have wields a lot of power." Mm-hmm. And so, I didn't write a review, but I didn't. I did end up writing a, a piece for the New Yorker's website about advice givers in over time. Mm-hmm. I wrote that piece, and a couple of people had said to me, hey, this should be a book. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm not writing a book right now. Right. Um, but it was an idea I just kept coming back to over the years. Mm-hmm. And then a, a few years later, I was like, you know what? I would like to write a book about Right, about, about
0: advice, givers, yeah. advice givers. Yeah. Well, let's get that. Part. So you, then you went to Serial, which obviously was this enormous, yeah. that's why we're all here. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's true. What did you do there?
1: So I was a producer in season two of Serial, um, and I came to Serial through a film production company called Page one that was mm-hmm. funded by Mark Bowl. Um And basically, so you had
0: left the New Yorker and gone, I
1: left the New Yorker, I had, after the New Yorker, I had, st- I um, started grad school at Iowa, the writer's workshop. And while I was there, I was working um, part time for Mark Boll as a researcher. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a great gig to have while you're in right. grad school. And then he started a production company and asked me to come on full time. And I thought it was a really interesting idea, Mm -hmm. Um, this idea of like taking specific journalistic projects and sort of creating the most blockbuster treatment
0: of them possible. Right, right, which is common, which is, you know, all the magazines do that.
1: Yeah, and and it was sort of this nimble organization that was going to be able to do that. So that really appealed to me. It was like combining narrative and journalism, which Mm -hmm. has always been the two things that drive me. And so I joined um, that company, and um, one of the first things I did at Page One was try to track down Bo Bergdahl. Mm -hmm. And so we had done about a year of reporting before we went out to Serial, like explaining what we had. Mm -hmm. And then um, once we showed them our materials, they were like, let's partner. And so then I spent the next year of my time um, pretty much borrowed by Serial.
0: Right, borrowed by Serial, working on the the second part. Yeah. Talk about that experience, what, what happened with that. Why was that so interesting? The Bo
1: Bergdahl story? Yeah. Well, I think for a bunch of reasons. One, it was that he... Um, I think Bo Bergdahl is a person who has a very lofty idea of himself. as a per- And he sort of felt like what he did was standing up to something much bigger. Mm-hmm. And when you see what he did... It seemed just like a a really scared kid who was in a right. situation he didn't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. And I think what what the series, I think the series did, and hope it did, was just sort of take that sort of contradiction and apply it to the whole war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was really appealing about it is that we could take one person's story and tell a story of an entire war. Sure.
0: And you were doing it through audio. Yeah, through audio. Did you did you have any uh, podcast experience or just? I had done radio in college,
1: so oh. it was really it was like such a fun, wonderful homecoming for mm-hmm. me to be able to come back to it.
0: Right. And so you worked on that and went over then to the next project, which was uh, Gimlet. Uh, I'm sorry, Vice. Uh, Mm-hmm. media, most News Tonight, yeah. where you were features, the head of features. Yeah, right? I was
1: the head of all the feature stories there. Yes,
0: and that was sort of fast and millennial news kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: it was. I mean, I think it, it was something. It continues. To to um, that. The, yeah, we did some stuff that was, yeah, I think my the department I worked on, worked on things that were a little bit slower and a little bit more, um, took a little bit more time to Come out, but I think what like the thing that was really exciting to me about Vice News was that it was a nightly news show where they were going to really curate the news, and mm-hmm. it's something that I think the Daily, for instance, has done so well. Yeah, that at a time when like we get one million news stories a day, right? To have a source where was like, "No, you you only need these stories. Like right. these are this is what you need to be an informed right. citizen right now." It felt like a magazine though. Yeah, but like a nightly magazine and yeah. like a like an. And so that really appealed to me because I think that's such a useful service in news right now. Super
0: high concept. Yeah. (laughs) It's a high concept, which is interesting. I'm always wary. I'm much older than you, but I was on a, there was a show called West 57th uh, that CBS, I think it was CBS, and it was all the young reporters. And the the beginning of it, you should go find it on the web because the opening scene is like ridiculous. They go running, like grab copy and run to the run right in front of the camera or, and it was like Meredith Vieira when she was very young and stuff like that. It was, it was a similar thing. It it failed Um because it was the idea that news, young people like news differently than old people kind of thing, which I always am sort of wary of. I don't think that's true. I don't either. I don't either, but it's designed, Vice News is designed that way and that's the way it's sold, mm-hmm. you know, which is interesting. And, you know, untuck shirts and everything else, yeah, which I'm like, exactly. and I'm, I find myself like thinking, would you please tuck in your shirt, which is a terrible thing when I'm watching the news, you know, but I and I, I know I sound like a crazy old lady shaking her fist at the Internet. But it was it was it's an interesting thing of where news is going and, and and stuff like that and how we get our information, which is how. So I want to get into this, the concept, because everything like what your book is about was something that was a staple of news products. And it's the same thing, but it's online. Yeah. Kind of stuff. So you, how did you get to the book? You just decided it's time to, to do this.
1: Yeah, so I had written that article, and then a couple years later, I wrote another article about um, two marriage gurus. Mm-hmm. And after I did that article, I realized that um, I really did want to delve into this subject in a in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why I wanted to um, was because I felt like the internet was really making advice like was advice was everywhere. Right. That suddenly, right. like it seemed like all of the content people like consumed, whether in podcasts or online was in some way a form of advice. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um I didn't think we had put a name on that yet. Right, right. And so I was this I'm like, this is this is part of a tradition and this is more popular than ever and I wanted to examine that. Right,
0: exactly. So you went back. So let's talk a little bit. And we're gonna get into it in the next section of the history of this, but let's talk a little bit about the history of advice because again it's it's something when I when I was making the point about advice, it's like you know, the same as it ever was, there's an expression, not, there's nothing new under the sun. It's your Eurip- Euripides a good piece of advice. Um and uh, I think it's Europeans. I'm pretty sure it is. But the idea that this has been around for a long time, that people have been doing this in some, whatever format it takes shape in forever, mm-hmm. forever. So talk a little bit about that, like the idea of how it's been delivered, these advice or what the history of it is.
1: Yeah, so... The, the, the thing that um, you see, if you go back to like the earliest advice givers, is that they were using anonymity as, a, as technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were saying, like, how do <laughs> That's I— That's a good way of putting it. Like, they were trying to really make this system where people can just— have a complete freedom to say whatever they wanted mm-hmm. and also complete freedom to sort of both ignore and idolize the person giving advice. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that was like being by everyone being anonymous. Right. And that um, that technology has been perfected by the internet. Of course, yeah. And I think that's why it's so popular today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but and if you go through history, there's like a lot of adaptations to that system. All right,
0: talk about the first...
1: So the first chapter in a
0: little bit more
1: The first commercial, like there were, so the first chapter in my book is about a guy named John Dunton who was giving advice in the 1690s in London. And he was a guy who like had a career as a publisher, nothing ever took off, and then he decided to start this magazine that was only advice. Mm -hmm. And he started it with his two like brothers-in-law and this guy, he was sort of like 50% sure was a doctor, but they pretended they were like 26 wise men.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: Weisman, the concept of yeah, Weisman, right? they like they, they pretend they were like the best astrologers and the best mm-hmm. mathematicians and religious scholars in all of London. So
0: there's
1: always fraud. There's and- always fraud involved. And um but people didn't care. <laughs> and like even though I it seems that like people were pretty suspect of like the actual quality of these people's resumes, mm-hmm. they didn't mind. They just really wanted to have their questions answered. Mm-hmm. And also really wanted to see their questions in print. I think is also a real real appeal. Mm-hmm. Um and so the first chapter of the book just sort of looks at, you know, what kinds of questions were people asking when presented with this new opportunity to ask them anonymously. Mm-hmm. And then the next chapter of the book... So, so what were they? We're,
0: I mean, they're a lot I of the love. same...
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Same questions as people have today. It's really hard to figure out if someone likes you back. Mm-hmm. It was really hard in 1690 and really hard today. Mm-hmm. Really hard to figure out marriage. Really hard to figure out sibling relationships. Really mm-hmm. hard to figure out, like, parent-child relationships. And then because there wasn't Google then, there was a lot of sort of informational questions that we would now post to Google, mm-hmm. like can a witch can you throw a witch in a pond and she'll die like mm-hmm. how does that work yeah that's a
0: big one I,
1: yeah. the day, I was Googling that uh, yeah you know like now we have Google to ask answer these silly mm-hmm. questions we have mm-hmm. um, things about food and diet things about the stars and the bathroom mm-hmm. um, there's lots of questions about horse excrement what about it like why it has a certain shape oh, right. you know just the, the kind of random questions we put to Google People. now yeah um, we'll, we'll like,
0: get in that later. <laughs> I'll have a good story about Google when I first went there. I oh, started. really? Yeah. So th- this was just printed, and then there would be answers. Mm-hmm. Hugely popular. Hugely popular.
1: And, um, and then—so that's the first chapter of the book. And then the second chapter of the book is about um, a guy named Lord Chesterfield. And he wrote— um, he didn't mean to become an advice giver, is what's interesting about him. Mm-hmm. So he had a child out of wedlock, and he wrote his son letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically every day to sort of try to make up for the fact that he wasn't present in his life. Right. And then when... These these be a man letters, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, be a man. This is how to like be in society. And his advice is very strategic and very, um, a little bit heartless. It's Mm -hmm. like, never say what you think, never say what you mean. Always sort of adapt to the situation. Never Mm -hmm. reveal too much of yourself. And then what happened was when... Um, Chesterfield died and left no money to his son's widow. Mm -hmm. Um, She was like, I'm going to get back at him by publishing all these letters. Mm -hmm. And the letters took off in America. And um, people were, when I say they took off, people, they were popular, right. but they were also, like, hate-read. People were very, people were really upset about it. And you can right. read letters between, like, John Adams and Abigail Adams about, like, how morally horrifying these letters are. Because of the advice itself. Yeah, because the advice itself. Because the idea that people wouldn't be themselves mm-hmm. and the idea that people, like, that the, the best way to be was to hide who you are. Mm-hmm. But the book was really popular in large part. What's it called? What it? It, I, the book was called "Letters to a Young Man." Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and yeah, I think that the you know the, he, the the book was super popular because it was giving people access to sort of think about things that nothing else was really giving them access to think about. I mean, right. this was a time when most books were religious texts, mm-hmm. and this was a book that was talking about things that people were thinking about, even if people weren't writing about
0: it. And then it morphed into Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. So we're going to get to that when we get back, who I think was the biggest advice yeah. giver of all times, Greg. We're here with Jessica Weisberg. She's got a really great book called Asking for a Friend and it's about advice givers over 3 centuries, which has sort of reached a a new height with the internet. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is really hard. I know this myself. I have done a lot of hiring and it's super hard to find people who have the right qualifications, if they're right for your company they have the right background, and it's really important to have a place where you can have as much choice as possible. But when you go to ZipRecruiter.com decode, hiring is easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. It's also the highest rated hiring site in America. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at the exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com decode. That's D-E-C-O-D-E. Get started today at ziprecruiter.com decode. I hope you've already heard that our sister site, Vox, just launched a show on Netflix. It's called Explained, and every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic, This week, that topic is cryptocurrency. I've seen it, I love it, and I think you will too. It does a great job at answering the question, why are people betting on cryptocurrency? It explains what cryptocurrencies actually are and how they work. It breaks down the history of currencies. And it explores why people love digital cash. You guessed it, for illegal stuff. It's narrated by Christian Slater, which is just amazing and odd at the same time. So go find it on Netflix. You can search for Vox or go straight to netflix.com explained. We're back with Jessica Weisberg. She's the author of Asking for a Friend. She's also had a million fantastic jobs the last one. Now she's working for Gimlet part time, mm. correct? Uh, another podcast company. Great, and they make lots of great podcasts. We're talking about advice givers of a century, and we're, we're way back in the Ben Franklin times. So Ben Franklin had it was anonymous, and he gave advice, and that was one of his most popular things he did. It was absolutely. He most did a lot of other thing things. We might yeah. want to thank him for, but
1: <laughs> yeah, he was a productive guy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, he what he did is he wrote advice. And very smartly decided. This is in poor Richard's Almanac, mm, right? Poor Richard's Almanac. And what I didn't really appreciate about Poor Richard's Almanac until I really re- wrote the book was how funny it is. Mm-hmm. And like he did have the good sense to present really earnest advice with sort of a sarcastic tone. Mm-hmm. And Give me I, an example. Well, you know, like because Poor Richard, mm-hmm. it was the idea was like he didn't know how to make any money mm-hmm. and he didn't have a great relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. And the idea of like taking financial advice from a guy who calls himself Poor Richard is a little right. ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that he just saw, like, we all, I think, bristle a little bit with too much earnestness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why there's a lot of, a little, there's a bit of embarrassment about the idea of consuming advice today. Mm-hmm. And I think Benjamin Franklin just had that, that, that had the sense to be like, oh, if I couch this in a sense of satire and humor, mm-hmm. it'll be more digestible.
0: To and people. He, he took the persona of, who? Con- I forget. Of, well, it's Poor Richard.
1: But then right. before that, he had other personas that he sort of played along, played around with
0: before he right. got to Poor of Richard. Of women and lots of...
1: Mm-hmm. And it was like he was very interested. He wrote about how, um, like very ahead of his time, he wrote about how um, you really, like the, the message doesn't come across... To a reader, unless it comes from the right author, right. And instead of trying to find the right author, as editors would do today, he mm-hmm. was just all of the authors. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so when he wrote about abortion, he wrote about it from a woman's right. first point of view. Mm-hmm. And then I think he's and similarly with Poor Richard, he's like, how do I get people to actually read the advice and not feel like they're being preached to or spoken down to mm-hmm. or just feel uncomfortable with the earnestness? Mm-hmm. I'll I'll do it from a guy you kind of want to make fun of,
0: right? Right. And he used, to, but he there's so many aphorisms. So go many go, aphorisms. go through a couple oh god um
1: there's like i mean early to bed just um rise makes a man healthy something and Wealthy wise, and wise yeah. um like so, a lot of there's a lot about not overstaying your welcome mm-hmm. fish oh. smells <laughs> after 3 days fish yeah. smells after 3 days um there is um oh there's so many um there's a lot about um hard work and being more important than intelligence there's mm-hmm. a lot about uh, there's did a- he
0: answer questions? No, he just put it out, like all kinds of tidbits in that mm-hmm. in Poor Richard's Yeah, they were just all
1: uh, like aphorisms. They were mm-hmm. not They were not responding
0: to and questions. And his point being, this was a business for him. He sold this. Mm-hmm. He sold Poor Richard's Almanac, so it was a good business for him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and did it set the tone for advice giving? Because he really had such an impact on...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are other advice givers who followed him who followed on the line of satire... Mm-hmm. Um, one for instance was this guy um, who wrote a book about efficiency in the 1950s C.J. Mm-hmm. Parkinson mm-hmm. um, I think I got that name right that's say. okay Um but he, so it was a book about business efficiency that was taken very seriously, mm-hmm. but he sort of wrote it in a satirical way. He's the one who said the quote, like, um, the work fills to the time you have to complete it. Oh, right. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's another guy, um, Michael Korda, who wrote advice books. One was called Power and one was called Success. Mm-hmm. And similarly, they're funny, funny books, right. but they're treated right. as, as sort of serious advice books. Sure, sure. So he definitely set America on that. Uh, He definitely gave a lot of advice givers the idea that like their work needed to be funny, and, and Landers and Dear Abbey are also really known for their pithy one liners, right? All
0: right, so let's get to them because we to get to them, there were all kinds of advice givers, yeah, a lot there's, of people. There's a them. lot of people who Dale Carnegie, it just goes on and on and on. And, and you know, who moved my cheese? It goes all the way up through <laughs> yeah. in between. Is it an American thing, or is it is it? I don't feel like Europe has a lot of advice givers, they don't, um, like they exist, but they don't, they, they have their fables, and then there's German fairy tales which are advice in some way.
1: Yeah, absolutely, but the the figures themselves do not reach level of prominence that advice givers achieve in America. There's mm-hmm. no Why equivalent. is that, do you think? Well, I think it's a few things. One, I think that if you I think having a a country without a centralized religion has created space for gurus and mm-hmm. created space for people who have unique point. ways of seeing the world that people want to follow. I think that um Lord Chesterfield, just to go back to an earlier example, was popular because he came to America during, right around the Revolutionary War, and there was just people really open-minded to different ways of living, mm-hmm. and sort of wanted to break tradition with, with the UK. Right. And this was an opportunity to think about different ways of existing and different ways of being around people. And I think that tradition continues today. And I also, like, one of the things I write about in the book is that the popularity of this form just really af- reflects the fact that... Um, that like the American Dream really exists in people's imaginations, imaginations
0: and heads, because that's what it's a lot about. So we go from Ben Franklin. What we, we're the next? What's the next big thing before we get to Deer Abbey and, and Ann Landers?
1: Yeah, the, after dear like there's a there's a few more in the sort of early America, and then I skip to the 20th century. And the 20th century, the the section that Ann Landers and Deer Abbey are included, or is a section about. How women were starting to get these roles, and, mm-hmm. and how they, and why they were starting to get these roles. So why were they? Um, it was that people were sort of interested in advice givers who were who weren't authority figures as mm-hmm. much as someone like Benjamin Franklin was mm-hmm. or led Lund- or Chesterfield was. They were interested in people who seemed like friends, who seemed like they could relate to the problems that right. were being faced by the people asking the questions. Right. And then when that transition happened, suddenly a lot of women got those jobs because they could traffic in empathy more so than other men could right and um, every
0: newspaper had one correct?
1: absolutely um there were and so i talked a
0: staple of, of uh, the offerings pretty much
1: yes and incredibly popular mm-hmm. um like there was one columnist at the turn of the 20th century Dorothy Dix who people said had more influence over cultural norms in america than absolutely any other force and because, why was that? What was the because and her she was conservative, right? Correct. Or she no? was actually quite liberal. She was mm-hmm. um, she Which was a suffragist. There's one
0: that was conservative. But anyway, go,
1: go ahead. She was a suffragist, mm-hmm. and um, she didn't like use her column to talk about feminism in a direct way, but it it definitely informs her advice, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I think she was just like the... But when the... There's a sociologist couple named Robert Lynz who were sort of studying trends in America, and that what they found was that Dorothy Dix could influence popular culture more than anyone. Give me an example of that. Like when she said... Um, like her ideas about marriage and divorce and when a ch- when a girl should start dating mm-hmm. and all of these things really it was how people glommed on to what was right and what was wrong because
0: mm-hmm. they weren't getting the signals that like you said from religion or mm-hmm. uh, which they were, but they weren't yeah but they were look seeking other ways to do it Now, she did this in a newspaper form she did now were these questions made up I mean most people that's how it, you know you think about it when you look at a lot of these things that they're they're sort of made up essentially
1: i mean I'm I'm sure that's the case. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure that some questions are made up. and I, But I also think that one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is I felt like all of the narratives about advice givers, like Miss Lonely Hearts, mm-hmm. for instance, that great book, is about these people as frauds. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, there's there's some Talk fraudul- about Miss Lonely
0: Hearts, if <laughs> so people understand
1: the context. <laughs> so Miss Lonely Hearts is a great book. Um, and it's about a man who is pretending to be... Um, an advice, uh, pretending to be a woman in order to write an advice book, not advice book, an advice column um, for the lovelorn. Mm-hmm. And he's he's in reality, he's sort of neurotic and a chain smoker and a bit of obsessive compulsive and kind of in a depressive, but in his words, he offers a lot of consolation to the people who seek his his help, and Mm -hmm. the questions he gets um, are a mix of things that are presented to him by his sort of drama-seeking editor and questions by real people, and the people Mm -hmm. have questions about all sorts of really heartbreaking things, and it Mm -hmm. sort of strikes the reader that this is the man Who's been sort of authorized to give them advice? advice. Yeah, so um, so I felt like that because there was so much about. For the fraudulence of the advice giver, I was sort of interested in another question, which is like the power of the advice giver mm-hmm. and the popularity of the advice giver. Right. So I don't look so much into the question of how many of these questions were made well, up. Well, but I'm sure, it's authority true. is an
0: interesting question, but is it, go, it does go back to the shaman idea, like the idea that there is a priest or a shaman or mm-hmm. some, because advice was, as you said, given by religious figures, often men. Yeah. Um. And, and this is the way you behaved, essentially. You followed along to them. Um, even if you're seeking other versions of advice, essentially. So there were lots of people like uh, pre Ann Landers, all mm-hmm. kinds of columnists, the Saab sister. There's all kinds. They went on and on and on. Yeah. And, and But we get to Ann Landers and, and Dear Abby, Dear Abby being the more important one. Mm-hmm. And they were sisters, correct? They were twin sisters. Mm-hmm. They were twin sisters. And
1: what happened was they... Um, and the woman who would later become Ann Landers got the gig first at the, mm-hmm. in Chicago. And um, their first few, her first months in the job, she and her sister co-wrote the columns because mm-hmm. she was really overwhelmed. She had never written professionally before.
0: How'd they find her? Um,
1: she applied. And mm-hmm. there was a test. Um, basically, the Ruth Crowley, who had been writing the column before her, died unexpectedly. And they had sort of a, a big test to see who wanted to be fill her shoes and she applied and got the gig um, but she had never written professionally before Mm -hmm. and she was really overwhelmed and she like roped in her twin sister to help her and then the and um, her editors were like we can't have someone outside the paper reading all this confidential information sorry that's not going to happen mm-hmm. and then the dear abby was heartbroken because she really loved the job mm-hmm. and then she sort of just browbeat editors in the, at the San Francisco Chronicle to give her a column of their own mm-hmm. and so within 6 months they were competing with each other and they were the only they were the two main advice columnists in America and they weren't speaking for many years and they were, were always trying to sort of get um, gigs out from under each other mm-hmm. and they had a very contentious relationship because they mm-hmm. both took the same path. Um, what's interesting about them is they have very similar advice though, even though they were so competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. And what interested me about them is like they were giving advice for such a long time. They really see the norms change mm-hmm. over the four decades that they right. were giving advice. Right. They start out feeling one way about gay marriage and um, interfaith marriage, yes, against against all those things. And mm -hmm. then they come off, and by the end,
0: they have quite progressive positions. Was that dictated by the newspapers or by them themselves? By
1: them. I mean, one thing that I think that they—one thing I will say is that I have found that becoming an advice giver— Advice giving has sort of a reputation for conservatism of Mm -hmm. saying like this is the right way to behave here. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people bristle at the idea that Mm -hmm. there's like there are norms and people are censoring you to achieve those norms. Right. But one thing I will say is that if you look at advice givers who stuck with the job for a long time, it has an an impact of making people more progressive. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Spock, for instance, who I read about the book, started Mm -hmm. with a very strict idea of how parenting should work. And by the end of his career, had a, had a much more progressive had idea. Himself. Yeah, and part of that is times change, but part of it is I think they were just exposed to so many different ways of living by the questions that were being Passed posed to them. To them. Yeah. yeah, and they, I think it did sort of it, it, it did sort of garner more empathy than mm-hmm. they had at the beginning. Do
0: you ever see that the idea of advice skiing as a way to control society? Because a lot of them were like, stay within the draw within the lines, stay within the rules. This is the way you do it. You can't do this. You can't do that. Absolutely. I read them and I'm, I'm like, I can't believe I'm listening to this. Yeah, I mean it's
1: horrifying that mm-hmm. there's like this I mean, it's the, the their early columns by Ann Landers and Dear Abby um, when they're saying like that a woman should stay in a marriage even though she's being hurt by her husband. Right. Is quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um and that's certainly a trend of advice givers and mm-hmm um the desire to have that role the the role of say, of being the arbiter of what's right and wrong in america mm-hmm. i think inspires some interesting power hungry people right um right. and you see that there's a there's a tension in all these people between wanting to help and wanting to achieve um a, a very unique kind of power and mm-hmm. i am sort of interested in seeing that sort of balance.
0: Was there any really awful advice givers like who really were like that? Yeah, I mean, there were,
1: I mean, I would say like I don't, I didn't – none of the people I wrote about the book I think are unilaterally awful because I just didn't think that would be a very interesting mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say there are advice givers who I think are saying very irresponsible things in very public places, and that's been true throughout Such history. Well, for instance, like I, I see the things – well, just as a contemporary example, mm-hmm. like I see a lot of things on Goop, and I'm like, oof, that's the Gwyneth Paltrow stuff, Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's – that seems pretty dangerous. Yeah, yeah, um,
0: yeah. Like a lot of medical... So she elect- wants you to put things in your <laughs> yeah. in your various body parts. And that that seems dangerous. Seem,
1: yeah, that seems pretty risky.
0: Right, right. Um, well, there's so, health stuff, and then there's per- personal stuff, emotional yeah, stuff.
1: Yeah, and then emotional stuff, I, I think that there's... Um, yeah, I, I I mean, especially today when anyone can become an advice giver, mm-hmm. and we don't—it's ha- not like as much of a centralized role as it was with Dear Abby and Inlanders. Mm-hmm. If you go looking on the internet, you can find some anything. anything. And we're going to get to that in the next section. Yeah. But
0: I want to finish up with Dear Abby. So what happened to them? They, they these—they they syndicated these columns. They were everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: so basically they. My grandmother used to read them. Really? Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, and my mom used to read them too.
0: Helen Gurley Brown was much bigger for my mom, but. Who was cosmopolitan? Yeah, and she gave she was more like everybody up sex, sex a yeah. single girl. And
1: yeah. but though it's really interesting to think about her advice sort of now in the era of me too mm-hmm. because she her advice was like if someone makes a pass at you, it's a compliment right. Yeah, and and she was also like such an inspiring person for people like my mom, mm-hmm. who didn't know that many women who worked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you should work. Women should work. But if a, if your boss makes a pass at you,
0: yeah, it's fine. So yeah. you read that today, and it's sort of horrifying. Yeah. Well, nothing ever holds up, does it? Yeah. So I mean, like, so it's hard. So, so you in, can watch societal norms change mm-hmm. with the advice givers. Absolutely, is, is, that's what's interesting about it in lots of ways. And it, it's interesting that they that they're not accountable for what they sad in some cases they they will like these like what you're talking about with ann landers but staying in a marriage that's dangerous mm-hmm. um they're not necessarily accountable
1: yeah that's like the that's it's a slippery role because they're not politicians and they're not right. academics mm-hmm. they're just people your people are seeking for advice so it gives them a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. um a lot of moral flexibility and you see people sort of shifting their values over time to reflect those of the time they're in.
0: Absolutely. All right. We're here with Jessica Weisberg. She has a new book called Asking for a Friend. It's about advice givers over time. When we get back, we're going to talk about the internet and how that's changed that. Today's show is brought to you by OneBlade. A lot of men struggle with shaving. From ingrown hairs to razor burn to just overall skin irritation, it's a painful chore that most men don't enjoy. Now there's a razor that takes the pain out of shaving and makes it an enjoyable experience that you actually look forward to. It's called OneBlade. OneBlade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burn or ingrown hairs. It's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving from the perfect pivot and weight to the finest materials, such as ultra high grade German stainless steel. It's an heirloom quality razor you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand assembled and serial numbered. And every OneBlade is backed by a full 60-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if your family has been asking what you want on Father's Day, give them this URL, onebladeshave.com slash recode. Just for Father's Day, you'll receive a free Yeti Rambler with all razor purchases. Visit onebladeshave.com slash recode. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week we answer all of your questions about consumer tech and this week's tech news. This week I talked to Peter Kafka and Casey Newton at the Code Conference 2018. Everything. What do we talk about, boys? Everything. Everything. Like what? Come on. We talked about all the best speakers.
1: Who said the most controversial thing? Are you doing what, that what Kara, what, yeah.
0: what Kara said to Sheryl Sandberg offstage. Yeah. No, we didn't really say that. We talked about what Evan Spiegel's really like behind the scenes. <laughs> Talk about Evans Spiegel's new shirt. Yeah, people didn't like that shirt. I, like, I thought it was great. It's got okay. a sweater. Okay, all right. In any case, it was a great podcast, and we talked about all the speakers of CODE 2018, which was a really great conference, which is just, just wrapping up. We are recording this from Rancho Palos Verdes by the beautiful sea. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. We're here with Jessica Weisberg. Her book is called "Asking for a Friend." It's about advice givers, and let's let's finish up talking about the internet because that's sort of changed everything. And there's Absolutely. it's it's one big advice giving platform essentially. And and you start with Google really, which is an advice giver as far as I'm concerned. Or yeah. how do you look at it now? Because it seems like there. And I remember there there were tons of companies that started, and I don't even remember the names of all you know. E opinions, every Yelp is even people giving advice about restaurants. It's everywhere essentially. Yeah, I mean. What's
1: interesting about the internet as an advice giver, Mm -hmm. as opposed—it's an oracle, really. Yeah, as an oracle, is that. On the one, like one of the things I have found throughout my book is that it took a century or longer for women to be able to give platforms for advice, Mm -hmm. and much longer for people of color to be given opportunities to give advice Mm -hmm. for a public, like a public platform to be given advice. So, an advantage of the internet is it's much easier to find people whose experiences resemble your own, Mm -hmm. and the you know the democratic nature of it you know, benefits advice giver is the way it benefits a lot of different parts of our communication. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of that is that we're all seeking advice from different people in a way that sort of changes, I would say, what advice, changes a little bit about what advice was originally intended for. Mm-hmm. Like when Benjamin Franklin wrote Poor Richard's Almanac, he wanted to give individuals advice, but he was also thinking about Rules to make society better. He Mm -hmm. was really talking. He talked about how his book was making. He hoped his the Poor Richard's Almanac would make the economy thrive and Mm -hmm. would make people harder working. Um, And now that the internet is gives us a more segmented idea of how to live and what's appropriate, it doesn't have that quality. Right. Um, And then, and then the good thing about that is we've talked a lot about norms and how a lot of the norms the advice givers provided over time. We're quickly outdated. We're somewhat oppressive. And obviously, we live in a time when, we, because we have fewer centralized norms, it's, it's sometimes how easier to avoid those sort of right. oppressive ideas that about how we should thing, live.
0: Because, you know, again, when you, I think about Google, it just literally, it's everything. Yeah. It's, and when I, the story I was thinking about is when I was um, there, I was there in the early days when they were doing it. But one time I was sitting there and they started to do this ticker where things would come through, like what people were asking about. Um, and I used to think about it as the database of human intentions. Like, what, <laughs> what are they intending to look for? And so you'd see they would screen out the porn stuff, which, which was quite a lot, and the queries and things like that. Um, and, and I would always be fascinated by why people were stringing words together. What do they want? Like, I think it was like searching. I mean, I know it sounds—they are search, but advice is searching for an answer kind of thing. And I was always like—there was one that was like Clydesdale horse, Mars, and some other thing. And I'm like, what do they want? <laughs> Yeah. What are they looking for? And so I started to I remember sitting there in this lobby going it was a really interesting moment of of asking questions, people asking questions. And I think it's um one of the things that was interesting is Google also had a globe where it would circ- they could see where the queries were coming from and what languages. And beams of light would come off this globe of where questions were being asked all over the world. And, you know, Amer- the U.S. was English, so it was in white, and Russia was in red. They were being fun, or the communist. Countries. So you'd see lights coming off of cities and everything else. And they spun around, interesting, to Africa because they didn't have connection there. There were no questions. Of course, there were questions there. Everybody has questions. But th- the ability to ask questions was a really interesting hmm. phenomenon. But now it's gotten noisy right? Very now there's too many questions or too many answers really
1: But I think that's a really that's a really good point about like what are people seeking when they seek advice? Like mm-hmm. are they seeking a straightforward answer? Are they seeking someone just to tell them that everything's fine and the decision they made is valid? Mm-hmm. Are they just seeking like a community of people who maybe share their experiences? I think it varies mm-hmm. and I think one of the advantages of the internet is that it can be all those different things depending on where you go mm-hmm. um, Like I, if you look at Dear Abby in Landers, like a lot of people over time were really using their columns the way we use a chat room. They were um, they were asking questions and then hoping that another reader would answer them. Not mm-hmm. necessarily dear Aviary and Landers, right? Um, and I think that's what the internet provides. It provides community and mm-hmm. community and connection non- and connection in a somewhat anonymous setting. Mm-hmm.
0: Why that though? Because it used to be your town was like that, and everyone knew what you were doing. But then you had, were limited by the people in the town and the, and their prejudices or their experiences, essentially.
1: Yeah, and I think there's it's, it's that like we all like. None of our communities are perfect mm-hmm. um, as much as we might love them. Mm-hmm. And then I think what what you see over time is that being anonymous is a really freeing tool mm-hmm. and that um, there's there's something about um, there's something about being able to escape your own identity that allows you to ask questions that hit a different place that than right. they would otherwise
0: a- at the same time though it does free you from other things, which is, Behavioral, like that, you Absolutely. don't behave because let's talk about that. Because the internet's gotten out of control, I think a lot of people feel, yeah. you know, not just the stuff that's happening uh, and uh, falsely the false news part of it sure. or whatever the abuse of the platforms, but the idea that it's and it's it's a cesspool, really. It's a noise like Twitter. I'm thinking of that where there's tons of advice on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of that one of the things that sort of raised the stakes of the book for me was when. Um, or made me relate to the people I was writing for, was when when President Trump was elected, I thought a lot about how um, there were suddenly people in real life and on the internet saying things that were just so bigoted and Mm -hmm. so hateful and that these advice givers, while they were trying to censor people— they were trying to create um, like it was in the name of people treating each other civilly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the people I interviewed for the book was Miss Manners, mm-hmm. who, Judy Manners, who's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And for the she, Washington Post, yeah, I know her. She's great, and she talks a lot about how, um, like, she wishes people were a little less honest online, right. Right. and that, um, and that she sees sort of etiquette as sort of a way to combat bigotry. And right. I think that just the changes of online, just how big of a cesspool it became, made me sort of relate more to the sort of formalized, uh, formalized ideas of advice that sort of older people gave, even if it was sort of, very strict in terms of how people should behave. That the intention of creating those standards of behavior was mm-hmm. a good intention, mm-hmm. even if it also did restrict the way people. It made people feel
0: bad but about is themselves. Is there any way to take the to put the good with the? You can't take put the top back on. No, right? you can't. I mean, it's interesting because I think it has degenerated conversations, degenerated advice, and people are confused almost continually. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel that way and I'm an older person, but, you know, my kids, they, you know, it, it, it's a very, conf- there's no central advice situation anymore. Mm-hmm. Or there's no one you trust to give good advice. Like maybe Oprah. I'm trying <laughs> to think. Yeah, yeah that's- I often quote Oprah. I don't know why. I just do because she makes sense. But is there, is there in this noisy, cacophonous situation we've gotten ourselves into, is there, where does advice go? What happens to it?
1: Yeah, I think it's very, very individualized. Mm-hmm. You go online and you you type in whatever search terms mm-hmm. that you like are inspired to type in, and you sort of go down the rabbit hole that you've found for yourself. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that on the one hand, it's this idea of you can be connected to anyone, anyone in the world, but it's such an individualized experience. You're not necessarily... Um the, the the answers you're seeking aren't necessarily sort of corresponding with the answers anyone else with the same problem is seeking because there's such a cacophony.
0: So what do you imagine happening? Because then you can think of AI, all kinds of things. They can give you advice, too. Like, oh, yeah. Computers can give you advice and probably better advice than people in lots of ways. Or statistically speaking, if you do this or you do that, um, where do you imagine it going, where advice is going? I think the history of vice is also the
1: history of media. Mm -hmm. And I think it's headed in the same direction that media is going, which is chaotic. Mm -hmm. And that the sort of standards and taste are just becoming... More fragmented in terms of what people are seeking and what we consider "quote unquote" good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's happening in every way in the right. media. Is there a
0: big advice giver now online? You would say, well, there's all the there's, YouTube stars, there's, there's, there's the all- YouTube stars, and of course, there's Oprah, and then mm-hmm. there's
1: all the advice givers who sort of fall like under the Oprah umbrella, right? Um, and then, but other than that, it's YouTube Dr. stars, Doctor Phil, Martha Beck, who I write about in mm-hmm. the book. Um, so there's, there's Oprah, but other than that, it's just everyone. It's celebrities who offer advice on their Twitter feed mm-hmm. and YouTube stars who offer advice on um, a variety a of format, fa- formats. And it's Quora, where I think people, it's like a it's it's, really it website an answer for say, yeah. advice.
0: An- yeah. Answers, they'd say. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's become more and more fragmented, and that's... The way the media is going, adv- like, not
0: just... Do you the imagine there world. ever being a big advice giver, a big central anything for humanity? Or the country or wherever? I think
1: that that's... It's harder to imagine now. I think that because of just the... It's harder to imagine one person being trusted by so many different segments of the population. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say that, like, everyone trusted. Benjamin Spock. A lot of people thought he was. I mean, he got a lot of mm-hmm. people really disliked him and thought mm-hmm. he was too liberal. But he was very, very trusted by huge swaths of the population. Mm-hmm. And the idea of one person achieving that sort of um, for their for people to sort of. Um, to circle around one person seems somewhat mm-hmm. impossible in our society right. today. What do you think?
0: No, I don't think so. And yeah. I think computers will be giving the advice at yeah. some point, and probably good advice, probably better advice than people in a lot of ways. But then you lose the heart of it. Like, AI can really mimic uh, people really well uh, over time. It Better how? They will have, in terms of just information, it'll be better. Yeah. In terms of information, it, it will understand your patterns. They'll understand what you want. Um, I think you can get to points of, of machine learning or, or, or advanced artificial intelligence that will be quite strikingly mm-hmm. uh, sympathetic yeah. or, or at least mimicking sympathy or something. Um and then you know, you wonder if there's a feeling computer. Like if there's a, right. a, a feeling like or or there's parts of your brain you can access. There's all kinds of you know, I just interviewed Michael Pollan about L S D and the chain how to change moods and it might that might be the way it goes. It might be chemical and uh, digital the way we feel better about love or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. But you can start to think where it could go. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's, what's sort
1: of, we like we started the conversation with Cheryl straight mm-hmm. as a person who sort of divulged so much mm-hmm. about herself. And to me, like that, you, you, AI will not be able to achieve that. The sort of connection with another person, the sort of deep pen pal type relationship that some advice givers were able to give right. their readers. Like that seems unachievable with AI, even though I... I I, I, there is, I understand, like a sense of connection that mm-hmm. people can have with AI. Yeah, yeah. But that, the idea that learning about someone else's experience and seeing yourself in their experience, mm-hmm. that I feel like that will not be available. All anymore. right, all
0: right. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so last question for you, Jessica. Um, what What's some of the best advice you got, you got doing this? Do you have any advice for anybody? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Do I have any advice for anybody? Um, let's see. Let's, the best advice
1: I... Um, I mean, I would say one of the pieces of advice I read in the book that I think about the most Mm -hmm. is um, it was Dorothy Dix, who was writing for women at the turn of the 20th century. And. People, someone wrote to her just feeling really stressed out about all sorts of things about her marriage. And and she said something about, like, it's amazing what a walk around the block will do. Yeah. And I was like, that's really
0: good advice. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it really applies to almost every Peached situation. Absolutely true. Um, it's 100% true. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's probably, that's probably that is a, a good piece of advice. One of the things I've been using a lot is, uh, speaking of digital, is a thing called we Croak.
1: Uh, which I talk
0: about all the time, and so sp- allegedly it was ninety nine cents. And in Bhutan, if you, they think about death five times a day, and so this this it's I consider it advice. They send you quotes um, five times a day, um, really th- death oriented quotes. Yeah, huh. and it's really it's fascinating. And uh, this one is this is from Seneca. So there's five of them a day, and they pop up, and I and they're quite good. A lot of it's Joan Didion, you know. Euripides, this is Seneca, it says, the whole future, this was what came up this morning, the whole future lies in uncertainty. Live immediately. I think that's a good piece that's of advice. Nice, very good piece of advice. That's you know, and it's nice. interesting, so, so it, they just, and it does, it does stop you for a second and makes you not, you know, when you're upset or about anything from work to love to whatever, you're like, eh, that's a fair point. Yeah. And I'm going to die. So, <laughs> so... <laughs> Maybe uh, not think about that minor. I think the best thing. piece of advice I've ever seen was Steve Jobs' speech on dying. On, yeah. I think that was... I think about that all the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. And I don't know why I can't tell you why. And I I was surprised the source. I'll tell you that that was, uh, that was, and I think we do get our advice from technology giants in a way we probably shouldn't, Uh which is interesting in any case. Would you have any advice for us? Other than the walking around? Walking around. I'm going to walk around. Uh, Just walk around the park. uh, Walk around the park. Okay, got (laughs) it. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Jessica Weisberg's book is called Asking for a Friend, and it's available now. Um, It's about advice givers um, and how it's changed over centuries and where it's going. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. It was really great talking to you. thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews just like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcasts, Too Embarrassed to Ask, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor Joel Robbie and our producer Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Saturday. Tune in then.